You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. Legal Issues and the Pandemic with Larry Salzman and Steve Simpson. Welcome to a special episode of Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you from the Ayn Rand Institute. This is a web series exploring life's big questions and the answers to those questions coming from the ideas of Ayn Rand. My name is Ilan Jerno and I'm your host today. All across the United States, millions of people have been told to stay at home or shelter in place to slow the coronavirus pandemic. At this point, about one in four Americans are under orders not to go to work, not to go to school, not to go out of their homes unless absolutely necessary. These extraordinary measures raise a host of legal questions. What legal precedents, if any, are there for such measures? Do they represent the suspension of the constitution? And how do the lockdowns relate to the principle of the rule of law and the protection of individual rights? Should we expect to see any of the lockdown orders challenged in court? To explore these and related issues, I'm joined today by two lawyers with expertise in constitutional issues, Larry Salzman and Steve Simpson. Larry, Steve, thanks for joining. Hi, Juan. Hi, Juan. Thanks. It's good to have you guys. So I want to just share a word of introduction so you, uh, the audience knows a bit about you. And um, to get started, let me tell you a little bit about Larry and Steve. So Larry is a director of litigation at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where his practice has focused on property rights and uh, property rights. <laughs> and uh, economic liberty. He is adjunct clinical professor of law at Chapman University. Uh, he's also a member of the board of directors of the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, Steve Simpson is uh, also a lawyer at Pacific Legal Foundation. He's a senior attorney there where he heads up the separation of powers practice group. For five years before that, uh, he was director of legal studies here at the Ayn Rand Institute. I had the pleasure of working with Steve every day and prior to that, before he came to the Institute, he was at the Institute for Justice litigating cases on free speech, campaign finance, and economic liberty. And uh, some of his cases are really well known uh, for those of you interested in looking him up. So thanks guys for joining. We're gonna talk for about 25, 30 minutes. I have a whole list of questions here I'd like to get clearer on. And well, once we do some of that discussion, we'll turn it over to some audience Q&A. And we have people on Zoom, YouTube, Facebook, and I believe Periscope. So give us your questions. I have a colleague, Paul Tasky, who's monitoring that. He'll screen the questions and uh, we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. All right, Steve Larry, there's a lot to cover. Why don't we start with what I think is on, on most people's minds. Um, just give us an overview of what is the law on things like quarantines and lockdowns? What's the state of the law on that? What is government's actual power today? Um, and then maybe we can get into what's actually constitutional, what's not. Are we are we seeing serious uh, breaches of that? So who wants to kick it off? Yeah, I can start, Elon. You know, state and local governments in particular have pretty enormous power to quarantine individuals and cordon off large areas, prohibiting people from moving in and out of areas. 
And we can talk about what's different between quarantine and sanitary cordons versus what governors are doing now. But the broadest orders we've seen in the current pandemic, California, New York, Pennsylvania come to mind, are definitely broader than anything I've seen a court rule on in the past. That said, taking California as the example, there's at least a statute that the governor is operating under to issue these orders. There's a text in that statute that supports the very broad shelter in place order, even if it's never been used quite this broadly before. And I doubt that any court would enjoin that power in the midst of the crisis, except in some limited ways that we can talk about later. That's not a precise answer to whether it's constitutional, but I think that what the government is doing is at least within stated legal authority. And it also sets aside a different question. We're talking about legal power here. And what I think the government can do or what it's historically been able to do is perhaps different than what it should do or why old powers or those precedents should be changed in light of all the science, medicine, communication, transportation that's available to us today that just wasn't available in past pandemics. But let me just say that there are half a dozen cases or more uh, that I can think of where during say the last 50 years where powers to quarantine or cordon have been invalidated by courts. So courts do act here. There are challenges that one can make, but it's a very long history of, of these powers in uh, American government even before. I think Blackstone, who's the major English treaties writer from the 18th century talks about quarantine as a power inherent in the power of government to protect public safety. And from the colonial era forward, uh, local authorities required at various times isolation or quarantine in response to infectious diseases. Infectious disease was all over. They, they didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have germ theory. Uh, yellow fever was common. They dealt with it the best they could. And coming into the modern era, there's a whole series of uh, state law and U.S. Supreme Court cases that deal with this. Uh, just to give you a handful off the top, I'm thinking there's a 1902 case involving Louisiana Board of Health that endorsed widespread cordons, citywide cordons. There's Jacobson versus Massachusetts, that's a 1905 U.S. Supreme Court case that endorses mandatory vaccination as a response to the spread of disease. You have a series of cases that didn't get to the level of the U.S. Supreme Court, but were dealt with in U.S. courts of uh, appeal. And the one that comes to mind in uh, California is a case called Juho versus Williamson, that dealt with the tuberculosis spread, and it was a case in which the cordon was actually struck down by a court as exceeding the power of government to, to cordon. But in doing so, it endorsed a very wide sort of power and set the parameters for it. So the point there is there's you know, hundreds of years of historical precedent of cordons and quarantines, and there's very narrow court decisions going back 100, 150 years, even you know into the early 19th century, 1824 is... Um, Gibbons v. Ogden, which is a case that has nothing to do with quarantines, but it's cited as a, a sort of offhanded comment that the quarantine power of the states was an example of something that state powers could be used for. So there's a long history of cordons and quarantines, and I, I think what they're doing is broader than anything that's been done before, but in a certain vein. So can I just jump in? Maybe you can help clarify this. So when you say, so a quarantine, I understand, is you take an individual or a group of individuals who are known to be sick and you, you put them off to one side, right? That's, I don't know if that's the exact definition. Whereas, what is a cordon? Is that more like what we're seeing in California and New York, where whole cities are told to um, just stay home? Or is there a more specific characterization of a cordon? No, well, the way I've seen it, looking at the way courts have looked at it, quarantine is individualized determinations. You, you have the disease, 
you, there's reasonable, uh, reason to believe that you've been exposed to the disease. We're going to just put you aside, keep you inside, put you under a, a lockdown where you're not allowed to contact anyone. If you do, there might be criminal sanctions involved. That's a quarantine. And there's some individualized determination about your situation in that case. A cordon is mostly, historically, that term has been used, a cordon sanitaire or sanitary cordon has been used to say, a, a mayor say, or a public health department can say, no one can come in and out of this area because we know the disease is here. Maybe we don't fully understand the nature of the spread or the communicability of it. So everybody who's in there has to stay in there. No one can go in. And usually that's just locking down a whole city or, or, or a section of a city. That uh, Juho versus Williamson case I mentioned before was Chinatown seemed to be the origin of the tuberculosis spread. And so they locked down just Chinatown at, at that time. And, it was struck down maybe instructively here because it was ultimately determined that the lockdown was not uniformly enforced. You know, white people were allowed to come and go and Chinese people weren't. So there was a discrimination aspect to it. And they ultimately figured out that it was the rats that were moving around and you can't lock down the rats. So we've talked a bit about what government power has right now and sort of the, the looking back at it. So, you know, what we've seen is that this has been characterized as an emergency situation. I think in many ways, in, in various places it is, uh, it seems that way. And so what, let's sort of broaden it a bit and say, so what, what goes into defining an emergency? What does it mean when a national emergency is declared? So I know that some states have declared a state of emergency. Uh, uh, President Trump has declared, I think, a national state of emergency. So what goes into that sort of just in terms of the mechanics, what, 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 what wheels are set in motion, what do you think should go into that? What, what sort of standards should apply? In a, and how do you view government's role in this kind of context? Steve, do you want to take that? I was going to suggest you start with the, uh, the actual mechanics of what goes into the law as it stands now, and I can address kind of how to think about it. And because I think you know a little bit more about the triggers. Sure. I, can, I can do it too, if you want, Larry. Yeah, I think we have to be careful when we say state of emergency. You know, the what's going on when the president or the governor says, I'm declaring a state of emergency. That That's not saying, uh, you know, we're under martial law or we're suspending the Constitution. That's often a very technical thing that they're doing. There's, there's some statute that Congress has passed that gives the CDC money or powers that it would not otherwise have to coordinate with state agencies or... Uh, ability to relax certain kinds of regulations or, or take more control over a circumstance. And when they say declaring an emergency, it's often the trigger for these statutory powers that only arise in the context of emergency. So, you know, there are powers that Congress has uh, approved and delegated to some agency that a judgment has to be made by the executive authority at the highest levels that, yes, now we want to put those things that Congress has approved in place for some duration or until I say there's no more emergency. If they're too late in saying there's no emergency, maybe a court would come in to constrain that. But so when we say emergency, you can be a little too loose with that term, you know, imagining that that just means he's uh, the president, it's President Trump or the governor, Governor Newsom of California, is sort of taking over some kind of dictatorial power. And it's not to say they, there's not risk here. There, there's an authoritarianism associated with too much of this emergency talk. But uh, it usually it has a very technical meaning that I'm triggering specific parts of statutes that require me to find an emergency in order to get money, in order to move personnel, in order to shift budgets around. That's often what's going on here. 
Yeah, and if you read the statutes, they they typically, or actually, if you read the orders, they'll typically include all of the grounds for why they've they've declared an emergency. And I I mean I agree with everything that Larry said on that. Um, and so when we think about defining an emergency, I mean there's the so let me actually back up and say first, um, I think that it's essential for government to have some power to define emergency. Now, the whole a whole lot of this. Um, and whether there's a threat to civil liberties or, or constitutional government, um, <clears throat> excuse me, comes in in how emergencies are defined. But it's val it's it's I think valuable for people to consider, or, or at least my view is that government has to have this power. It has to have power to move and deal with true emergency situations. And there's Larry's recounted a lot of the history in the context of. Um, of pandemics and diseases, but if you branch out and you just think broadly speaking, you know, military emergencies, kind of weather emergencies, all kinds of things that can threaten the ability of government to function, can threaten the ability of people's rights to be protected, can threaten uh, uh, civil society. Um, if you take this all historically and you look at context, I mean, <clears throat> a lot of this um, a lot of the thinking was done in, you know, in historical periods. Larry mentioned Blackstone, um, another good uh, place to, to take a look at how governments think about this is the Revolutionary War, um, where, I mean, there were, there, the, the, the founders learned all kinds of lessons about how to make government effective, um, how to think about executive power, and they learned really hard lessons. I mean, you think about um, Washington's troops starving at Valley Forge. There were a lot of reasons for that. And part of the reason was they had no real good executive um, power at the time or, or a clear view of executive power, um, which causes all kinds of problems. So you do have to have uh, some branch of government able to act quickly in a true emergency. But then the question is, how do we define an emergency? And I think that's um, both, it's a hard question, but uh, um, it's something that we need to be doing a lot of thinking about and people should be thinking about it at a time like this. Um, and I, I think there are kind of two ways to, um, or at least there are a number of touchstones that we can, we can consider. And let, let's start with the purpose of government um, because I think it's, it's most effective to, to ask what, why do we even have a government? And then, uh, and what does it mean to have a government and what is the, what is the purpose of government and what, what benefits does government provide? And then I think we can reason from there to try to figure out what is the, the appropriate contour of an emergency. So let me just oversimplify the point to government's proper purposes to protect individual rights, but you can broaden it a little bit beyond that. And I, we, can, we can unfold this a bit more, but I don't wanna talk too much about the nature of rights other than the basic idea here is to protect people from the initiation of force from coercion. But we get out of that principle, not just that government's role is to protect people. We need a whole system of government in order to make sure that happens, courts, police, military, et cetera. And I think that that leads us to uh, uh, you know, the, the proper inference that in order to have rights protected in a society, you need a system of laws, you need something called the rule of law, um, which is contrasted with say, anarchy in a given situa situation, uh, um, you know, think of riots, think of uh, the aftermath of, um, of, uh, of weather emergencies like hurricanes where you have the breakdown of law and it's essentially anarchy. You have things like uh, looting, you know, happening. Um, so, it, you know, there are definite circumstances in which you can get a breakdown of civil society. And if that's happening, everybody's rights are, are threatened at that time. So, 
Um, uh, now, whether and to what extent a pandemic qualifies as that is something I think that we need to really think hard about. But uh, it's definitely the case that government has to have the power um, to, at least in a short-term sense, you know, impose order so that rights, so that the government can actually perform its proper function. And if you think of something like an, a, a riot situation, the LA riots I often think of, which I don't think they actually in, uh, um, initiated or imposed anything like uh, martial law, but it would have been the circumstance where you had a total breakdown of order. I think it would have been entirely appropriate for the government to say, look, in a certain part of the city, we're gonna lock people down and we just have to impose order because there's, we, we basically have chaos. And during a period of chaos, um, there's no law and order and everybody's rights are, are threatened. Uh, and if you have that, um, you know, you, you, uh, you really have an inability of, of, uh, of government to function and an inability of people to have their rights protected. Now, so it, let me pause there because I think there's a whole lot to unfold but I think that informs our view of what should a government do during a pandemic? Is it appropriate to have these kinds of lockdowns? I mean, definitely, as Larry put it, and I agree with this, um, I think the power of quarantine and cordon and something like that um, has to exist because you have a circumstance in which everybody can, you know, people just going outside and, and, and uh, interacting can infect other people that one can think of that as the initiation of force. And it can lead to a breakdown in, in the civil order and, and uh, people's ability to, to function. And so government has a proper role, but really parsing that out is not easy. And I think we have to distinguish both between, and this is something that I think see, I see being conflated today, uh, between government's proper role as government and government's role in modern times as healthcare provider, which it is, whether we like it or not, I'm not a big fan of that as people would, would guess, I think anybody who's in favor of the free market thinks the government should stay out of healthcare. But the fact of the matter is the government is involved in healthcare. But I think conceptually, we have to separate those two things out in thinking of what types of things can government do and what is appropriate for government to do. But let me pause there, Alon, and, and if you want to- Yes, I just want to underscore something you said. So in, in, infectious diseases, if they're particularly communicable, and there can be a threat to other people. They are a reason for government to step in. And, and this is where the issue of quarantine and cordons come in. So just to underline that. So that's uh, something I, I think is really helpful. Um, so let, let's just, uh, in terms of what it means to have an emergency situation like, so you know, I think the whole state of California is subject to a stay-at-home order. I don't know if stay at home is, is, a, is an actual legal term of art, but it, it seems like they're, they're enforcing it as a kind of cordon. So what I, I'm interested in, in just, if you guys have comments on this is when we have something like that, what would you, so, I mean, one of the principles of, a gov, uh, of the United States government is a rule of law. So what, what kind of things do you think have to go into justifying that? So what would have to be known? What would have to be said? What would, what would be the constraints on this? Because it, I think you raised this earlier, Larry, there is a concern about this is the way some authoritarian regimes just have established themselves, right? So it's not a, an unthinkable scenario. And I think a lot of people are worried about that. So, so you said that in, in the, I think you mentioned the, the California order, in, did, does it state what you think it needs to say in terms of evidence and justification for the level of um, closures that it is calling upon people? What, what would you like it to be in terms of just objectivity in the law? Well, well, let me take that in sort of two cuts. One, 
what is the authority they're invoking, whether it's at the federal level or, or the governor's level, there are, uh, there are statutes that authorize the CDC to take the actions it's taking. There are statutes that authorize the president to take the actions that he's taking. So in some broad sense, they're not just waking up in the morning and say, I, I think I need to do this and they're acting truly arbitrarily. There is some law there. The question is now, how are they applying that law? How are they enforcing it? And are they doing that in a way that's constitutional or, or lawful for other reasons? And this seems to have been handled really badly. Uh, one thing I think we just need to be objective about is the level of uncertainty that people are operating under, right? Uh, people didn't know how communicable it was. It was unclear how lethal it is. And those things make a difference into how extreme you might you might go. So the first response, uh, I don't know about this first response, but the, by, the, by the time we got these orders, the response was, we, we believe we are in a total disaster in the making and we have to take extreme action. That might be justified if you have some reason to believe that, but for how long? How long does it take you to develop that evidence? And uh, you know, what rights are you impairing? Here, we're, we're doing quite a lot of damage to people. I mean, people are losing their livelihoods, they're losing their freedom of movement, they're uh, losing a lot of money. Uh, losing their ability to associate uh, with each other. I mean, no one's telling us we can't speak in certain ways or do a, a webinar like this to criticize the government. It's not that draconian, but it's um, there's a lot of rights at play. So, you know, I guess what I would have liked to have seen from the governors and the president is clearer direction. Like, say, like he, they did say here the laws were invoking, right? at least the governor's order here in California that I saw was very clear. Here's the statutes on which I'm operating. But it would have been good if they would have said very clearly, here's how long we intend to do this. Here's what you are and are not permitted to do. Here's what will happen to you if you violate these orders very clearly. That, that would be part of being objective. And although this hasn't really come up, perhaps because it's just assumed, uh, there is an important rule of law point of, well, what to do if you want to challenge them. I mean, you, you want to get notice, you want to get some kind of hearing if you're being required to stay at home for a very long period of time, maybe at all. Uh, you can go to court to challenge these things. The question is whether you'd be successful in court if you tried to challenge it. I think the likelihood of being successful for a few weeks of lockdown in the midst of a great uncertainty, a judge is going to rest with those questions the way we would. Well, what's the level of certainty? What else could they have done? Uh, what's the risk that you might have the disease and harm other people? You know, is the government being responsible in uh, preventing you from forcing others to get this disease? So I think in the midst of the crisis, it's very unlikely you get a court to overturn them, but you do have, you want some notice, you want some clarity from the public health officials of why are we doing this for how long, what is it, what is the plan? You wanna know what the penalties are for violating any of those orders. And then you wanna have a process for individualized determinations and hearings and something that would be a, a neutral arbitrator, a court, backstopping all of those powers to make sure that they don't go on longer than needed. Uh, or, or rational. Well, and can I add just a couple? Yeah, quick, go ahead. Um, I agree with what Larry said. Um, I would, so the, the California order, I'm pretty sure says April 19th is the, it lasts till April 19th, I, I believe, uh, but it does have a date in there, I think, and some of the other state orders do, um, which I think is what, that's probably more than a month. I can't remember precisely when it was, but it was roughly a month. I, I think that's too long. I think that they should, I would say to be consistent with the rule of law, as I see it, it should be short term intervals, like a week or a couple of weeks. It doesn't mean that they have to lift the thing, but it would be, I think it would, 
So part of what the problem is that I see with these orders is there's just vast uncertainty as to how long they're gonna remain in place. And, and, and this is a point that many, many people are making, but I would emphasize it that uh, it's, it's highly problematic for government to effectively be saying, and this is the impact of an order like this, we're gonna shut down the economy, we're gonna you know, hobble large swaths of the economy, which is to say people's ability to live their lives and then production to, to protect us from disease, all of that is necessary in dealing with the disease. It's not, it's not as though uh, we can just shut down the entire economy and then wait for the disease, disease to stop and somehow everything continues. That has a gigantic cost on people. Um, so I would much prefer to see these orders very short term with governors and or uh, mayors saying, we're gonna revisit this on a, on a periodic basis. We're gonna reevaluate information, especially when you have a circumstance like we have today where the information is there's really a dearth of information both because government has failed in many ways but also just because it's hard to know exactly how this is gonna gonna flesh out um, so there's an inherent uh, dearth of information that I think is just natural in a situation like this um, so I would like to see these orders much more short short term and uh, and see them see more of an appreciation from the various politicians that people's lives, carrying out their lives, economics or the economy. We talk about this as the economy as though it's a big machine. But I mean, what we're talking about is, is people's ability to sustain their lives. And that that's a hugely important part of both dealing with the disease and just continuing on with civil society. And I don't see any recognition of that coming from governments much, at least early on in the process. Now, later on, I mean, actually, weirdly, Trump has, has recognized that, um, uh, which is, I think, a good thing. And I think you have uh, Governor Cuomo in New York is, is another one who's, who's now starting to see, look, we can't just shut down all of life. And there's, there's voices, uh, I think, of reason to that extent out there. But I think it, it would have been far better to see um, governments taking that into consideration, just recognizing, look, we got to get people back to work very quickly. Um, so Steve, I just want to circle back to something you said because I think connects to this. So you just said uh, in part of your comment that you think there have been government failures here. And then I want to connect that to you are saying as well that, you know, in the current situation we have, we have a, a mixed economy where there is pockets of freedom, but government's involved in a lot of areas of our lives. And the main one, the one you mentioned was healthcare. Government's a big player in the healthcare space. So well, I mean, what do you see as the failures that as part of the context for thinking about this and what, how does that fit into sort of the reaction that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, the, the giant, there are two giant failures here. And the one is the, the federal government being involved in um, the testing side, or it's really, it's really medical devices and all forms of drugs and pharmaceuticals. And that includes tests and that's both the FDA and the CDC uh, and it, it, I mean, I think everybody knows already that um, that what the FDA and the CDC did and the federal government in in hobbling our ability to test quickly is just a gigantic, massive failure. So that's one, and we can talk more about that. And then the other is just is just government involvement in the healthcare market in general. I'm not a healthcare economist, so I'm not going to try to play all that out. But just suffice it to say, and again, there's all kinds of sources that people can find on this. Um, government controlling private economic affairs is a giant mistake and a horrible thing, and it and it it, it just inhibits supply of healthcare services in all kinds of ways. And I mean, just to pick one example that PLF deals with, certificate of need laws, which uh, I think 38 states have these, where essentially 
the, the, the government has to approve your ability to expand services. And the argument is that more supply will, will, will um, cause healthcare costs to go up, which is economically idiotic, but also the idea that, that, that to, to increase the number of hospital beds we have or medical devices like ventilators, we have some central authority and ask their permission is completely bonkers. And, and I mean, it's really um, restricted the ability of government or sorry, of, of private industry to ramp up. But the, the, I don't even think it's possible to trace all of the various, um, all of the damage that the, that the government has done government's levels in the healthcare market because it's so complex. It, it just has reverberations throughout the economy and it, it really hobbles uh, the nation's ability and private market's ability to, to rise to the occasion and do things like, you know, not just uh, um, ventilators, but personal protective equipment, masks, everything. So it's a total mess, and uh, and um, and that now what what you see then is there's this enormous pressure because you have this um, you have giant demand, you have diminished supply, and then that that reverberates not only in an economic way but in a political way as well because then the, all of the politicians see we have this uh, demand for services we can't possibly meet that the hospitals can't meet it, and now that is then parlayed into its own form of an emergency. It's a supply emergency. And now from there you get this enormous political pressure to shut down the entire economy or shut shutter people in place, so to speak, and have these stay at home orders because we know we're gonna flood the hospital and the, and the healthcare system. And that just, that has a political impact as well. And in a sense, I mean, it's understandable. So uh, this is not understandable in the sense that we want government to be doing this, but it is entirely predictable that if you have government restricting the supply of healthcare services, you're going to be having bureaucrats and governors and others saying, look, we're, at a we're in a position now where we have an extreme shortage, su you know, supreme demand for these services. We're going to have uh, overwhelming of the healthcare system. We have to do something because we're responsible for it. And the incentives are such that it's almost inevitable that you're going to get these kinds of shutdown orders. So um, my, my point here, the ultimate takeaway from this is we've got to get out of this situation, but we also have to think about um, just, uh, and I think Ankar and Greg talked about this in, in their various webinars that they've done, um, just sort of gird ourselves for the fact that government has done this. And now what can we really do to get out of this situation? But we have to, I think, face the fact and let me just close um, this point this way. There's a limit to what government can do. Once we've gotten ourselves into this situation, there is a limit to what government can do. And we really need to think hard about, are we doing more, are we doing worse? Are we, are we creating more problems than we're solving? And I think there is, unfortunately, even within sort of the free market community, this view that, okay, we're in a crisis, and we have this, you know, uh, this this uh, um, you know, swamping the healthcare system. So government has to take these extreme measures, like shutting down, uh, um, you know, shuttering people in their homes, um, because they have to do something. One question we have to be asking is, can government even solve this at this point? Uh, and my my view is, I, I don't really think there's a ton that government can do to solve this, other than getting out of the way. Although there's a whole lot to say, and I don't want to minimize it because there's real problems here. Um, but we do have to think a bit about, okay, what can government really effectively do by shuttering people in place? 
Elon, maybe if I could follow up briefly on that, because I, I feel like I've talked about a bit of how broad the government's powers are here as a way of kind of uh, not normalizing what's going on, but perhaps reducing the fear that this is, we've unleashed a dictatorship overnight or something. But there is a tremendous government failure here. I mean, I think now it's reasonable to say the right process would have been test, trace, isolate people and not had the roughly month that we lost because we delegated things to the CDC as this bureaucratic machine, as opposed to doing what the Germans did or the South Koreans did or some other people did. You can say that maybe in the midst of the problem, once it was discovered, like, oh my gosh, we are gonna overwhelm our healthcare system. We've got to do something immediately. There's some emergency powers that can come into play, but we have a real uh, government failure and a cultural failure as to how those powers were used. Broad powers mean the government has a lot of discretion here. They could have used those powers in a very different way. Instead of locking everyone indoors, they could have unleashed a free market response. They could have recognized that in the midst of a crisis, any kind of crisis, whether it's pandemic or hurricane or earthquake, you need to innovate, you need to adapt, you need flexibility, you need production, you need goods moving to the right places at the right times without all the restraints. Governor Newsom and President Trump could have used the tremendously broad powers that they have under these laws to relax the regulations. They could have sat down with their heads of each of these agencies and said, we are going to use this power to let you do anything you do to take all the restraints out of the way of the private enterprise that could be brought to bear on this problem. And a little bit of that has been happening in the last week, I see, but uh, it wasn't the immediate response. There was a more authoritarian reflexive response of, we've got to close everything down, we've got to shut everything down, we have to respond to this emergency in a way that governments typically do. And, and that is really a cultural failure as well as the government failure. So we have a lot of questions from people watching, which is great. And if you're watching us, uh, we'd love to get your questions. Um, as I'm going to, I'm going to give you guys one more question from me, and then we'll turn to the audience. As I'm doing that, I'm going to launch a poll for those of you watching on Zoom. Uh, I'd like to get your feedback on this question. It would be really helpful for us. Uh, just take a moment. So Larry, Steve, um, you were, you've been saying, sort of outlining some of the ways in which there had been a government failure and a, and a, and a cultural failure. I, I'm interested in what you think of, and I actually um, think there, there's, there's a whole topic here for another webinar for us to talk about this, which is tracing out the mechanics of what happened, what went wrong, what, what, what do we know now, and how would we approach it differently. I'm interested from the perspective of lawyers, and you guys, part of what you do at Pacific Legal is challenge the government, and try to find ways to to constrain its power back to the original purpose of government as protecting rights. Um, what do you see as, as places for concern or tripwires for things that you think, okay, if this happens, we're gonna be really, con this is a sign of really, you know, uh, sort of going down the wrong path very quickly. Cause I think what some people are, are pointing to, which is, and it's come up earlier, emergencies are, just often an excuse for ex massively expanding government power. And it, it doesn't tend to go back to where it was before. If you think about wartime situations, 9-11, we got the Patriot Act, which vastly expanded government. So just, um, and um, if I, I don't know if you have to comment on these, but the thing that raises this question for me are two headlines in particular that you must've seen last 48, 72 hours, the Defense Production Act, pushing um, President Trump invoking that to get General Motors to start making ventilators. And there was another smaller story about changes that the DOJ, Department of Justice has suggested. And so if we can work those in, that would be great. But just tell us what you see as tripwires, your concern. You want yeah. me? 
Oh, go ahead. Can I just? I mean, there are some things that, I mean, as you say, PLF's business is suing to, to advance the principles of limited government through the courts. And so we have ongoing cases, even before this crisis, about certificate of need laws, a whole project to get rid of these laws. And we have largely prevailed uh, in those lawsuits over the last five, six years. One that we have now, for instance, is representing somebody who owns a non-emergency ambulance transport company. And he simply couldn't operate in Kentucky because they have a law that says you need the permission of your competitors before you can start a new ambulance company. It's a, it's a protectionist law. So we would like to challenge all those laws that are exposed as having never been necessary and been a real detriment to our response to this kind of pandemic. In terms of tripwires going forward, we're just monitoring what is all the legislation and the executive agency actions that are happening. Some of them are probably not challengeable. They're short term. They probably are not going to have a long legacy. But when you see new legislation, the, you know, the multi-trillion dollar package that's come out from the federal government likely has things buried in it that are just violating constitutional rights. And we don't want to let that rest. We want to attack it. If you saw the same thing coming out of state legislatures, that's what we would be looking for. It's one thing to say we needed to lock everything down for a month to understand the communicability of the disease, to figure out how to test and trace and isolate and get the economy functioning again. If those things go on too long, or if they're laden with new controls over the economy that are alleged to be justified by this pandemic, but are really just uh, you know, old wish lists from regulators that they're now injecting into the economy, we would want to challenge all of those things. I haven't quite seen anything quite as broad as what happened during the Great Depression, but the way I, I think of it, I've discussed it with some of my staff is we PLF would like to be in the position of the people challenging something like the National Recovery Act, which you remember in the 1930s was a massive attempt by Roosevelt to cartelize and control the entire US economy on the justification that, well, the depression is exposed that our economy doesn't function well as a capitalist economy. Well, something like that, we would be on the front lines challenging those things in court. Some of what's a frustration here, I think, for you know anyone who's in the midst of this is that we have 200 years, you know, just going back 50 or 70 years of modern judicial precedent. All constitutional rights have a context and a standard of review that reflects the judiciary's understanding of that context. So you have some rights like free speech that the government says, uh, the judges will say, well, you can't abridge that unless you have a very compelling governmental interest for doing it, you know, avoiding a fire in a crowded theater type situation. And your, your law is very narrowly tailored to only affect that very small problem that you perceive. We have 75, 90 years almost of uh, precedent that says economic liberties and property rights get the least protection under the constitution by the judiciary. So when you look at why it may be hard to leap into court now and say that all these shutdowns are having enormous effects on people's livelihoods and their property rights, Partly the, the reason we've got to wait it out a little bit and see what worse comes down the pike is judges have decided for almost 90 years that those are the very rights that get the least protection and the least interference by the judicial branch. And where uh, legislatures and the executive branches are at their maximal discretion. And, and that's just the reality of legal history in the United States for the past 100 years nearly. Yeah, I'll, let me offer two quick thoughts on that, um, just in terms of tripwires. One is what I would call something like an intellectual tripwire, which is um, there's an implicit justification, in my view anyway, for the, let's call them the shutdowns, that's not been made explicit and really is, is it hovers out there and 
um, and I think it's very problematic. It's it's bad in in my view, and that is, it's something like a utilitarian justification for the for you know these shutdowns. And probably the best quote that I can think of is is Governor Cuomo from New York saying, you know, any amount of money um, to save lives is worth it, and therefore we're going to you know impose these shutdowns. Now, Cuomo's done a lot of good things too, so I don't want to dump on the guy too much. But the point is that that's a broad view out there. Is is that government's job is to quote save lives which is a very i mean yes of course in some sense that is true but it's not um that that government has the power just to to decide to shift all resources to saving x number of lives it, it can't do that first of all i mean there's all kinds of circumstances in which you could apply that highway deaths flu deaths i mean any circumstance you could turn that into an, a justification for broad broad powers of government but we have to make that um, we have to challenge that premise. Like, look, this is not really what government is is for. Government is for protecting rights. Um, it's for maintaining civil order. And then we we need to think about what constitutes an emergency. So if it's it's one thing to say we're going to have a total breakdown of the healthcare market, but or or system, but that I mean, we really need to be careful about throwing terms around like this, uh, analogizing this to a war situation. Uh, and I really think bring out and just be clear about why is it that government is is doing this and, and what is the, its real role in this. So that's one tripwire that I think is already out there. People need to talk about it. They need to challenge that premise and reorient ourselves to just understanding what is the proper role of government because that'll get us thinking about what government can actually do. And I don't think government can solve a pandemic. It can do short-term things, but, what's, but solving a, a pandemic is all about production and you know, in, innovation, et cetera. The second sort of tripwire is, again, I don't know if this is really, think about it, this is a tripwire, but it's just looking through history, and Larry alluded this, to this already, um, about what we got out of the Great Depression, out of sort of the, think of it as the Cold War, think of it as 9-11, think of it as the, the financial uh, crisis in 2007. And what you see consistently is giant growth in the administrative state at all of those levels. I would be floored if we didn't see coming out of this, this crisis a real push to consolidate and create something like the Department of Homeland Security, except for health, disease, whatever. So combining the CDC, combining the FDA, throwing in a bunch of other powers and creating yet another giant unaccountable bureaucracy, which, and people will not learn the lesson that, you know, the FDA and the CDC really screwed this up. Let's take a look at why that happened. It's not enough just to say Trump screwed up or there are bad people at the FDA. There are institutional reasons that um, that they didn't, that they weren't able to uh, uh, allow the testing. Um, to leave aside whether there should be any government involvement in that at all, which I think there shouldn't. But even assuming there is going to be some government uh, involvement in that, we need to think about okay, what does that mean? And there's a whole institutional framework that slows our ability to deal with that. I I, I would put it as it's, uh, it's the worst version of the precautionary principle you can imagine. It's, it's total risk aversion and uh, bureaucrat, it's a kind of bureaucratic sclerosis. So if we wanna be able to deal with this the next time this happens, we have to shrink these agencies, not expand them. Uh, Ilan, I know we wanna get to questions. I'm also afraid I didn't answer your question. I mean, as with the Department of Justice looking for expanded authority to detain people for longer periods of time without uh, hearing, I mean, yes, I mean, somebody has to sue over that, right? That's absurd. It has nothing to do with this particular crisis. Whether uh, PLF would be the people to sue, we don't typically represent the kind of people who would be in jeopardy from that. But 
absolutely, somebody needs to do that. The Defense Production Act, it's actually unclear whether Trump is using it or not. Like he, he keeps using the words, but it's not clear to me that he's actually triggered it. And it's unlikely that GM would sue because they were already interested in making the ventilators. And in any event, uh, it's a very, it's fairly rarely used law. And there is good press on the books from 1952 when President Truman tried to use it to call workers off a strike and back to work at steel mills. And the basis for getting uh, struck down in that case was, uh, or his, his attempt to do that being struck down, was pretty good. I mean, the court basically looked and they said, we look at the evidence and there's just no evidence that there was actually a shortage of steel. You're just, you know, using your uh, presidential power to influence a strike. You can't do that. And so there's pretty good precedent. So I don't think that's going to get too far away from us. But, you know, anything like a new TARP, a new National Recovery Act, you know, a new Homeland Security Agency, things that are just leveraging this as an excuse to expand government power, uh, we want to look at every dimension of that to bring lawsuits that would be effective. It's also right. worth noting that the Defense Production Act doesn't have anything to do with pandemics. It's uh, <laughs> about national security. It's only ever been invoked in those contexts. Um, why don't we transition now to some questions? We have a lot. So I want to try to, I'm going to combine some questions. I'll, I'll mention the people who put them where, wherever I can. And um, so let's take a couple. Uh, so about New York, New Jersey, the question is essentially what is, uh, what's the scope of presidential power specifically on this kind of issue? And it comes up in the context of New York and New Jersey where Trump has apparently said um, he wants to, he's considering an, quote, enforceable quarantine on those areas. So is there such a thing? Does he have more power than we realize? Or what is the scope of that? Just if you could do that, like in a nutshell. But I'm a little uncertain. I don't want to go beyond what I know, but I'll say the primary power for quarantines accordance is coming from local public health officials and state. It's a state power that's often delegated to local public health agencies. There are uh, administrative powers at the federal level that come under the Food and Drug and Cosmetics Act and the enabling statutes for the CDC. And so there are definitely limited circumstances in which the federal government has powers to override what the states are doing you know, unless there was just something really out, so off the charts going on in New York or New Jersey that would justify, it seems unlikely. The one thing the federal government could do, it seems from past cases, is pro prohibit interstate travel between a state that has a particularly bad infectious disease rate and other states. That, that's possible. Never been done before, but it's at least a possibility. Okay. Um, so that was from Anonymous on Zoom. Uh, this question is from uh, John on Zoom. So uh, I'm going to condense it a bit. So the question, let me put it in two contexts. One is in today's context and the other is in a, what you would take as a sort of ideal government system where the, the scope of government is properly delimited. Um, under what conditions uh, could the government force someone to be tested for something like coronavirus? And I mean, this is already in the realm of if we had testing at the point, uh, could be tested for that. And um, if you refused, could they could they force you? Could they punish you? Um, and how do you how do you navigate that kind of issue? Uh, I mean, I can say something, and then I'm interested in Steve's view. But uh, I mean, I, I think they have some power to do that, right? It would probably fall under. I mentioned the 1905 case of Jacobson versus Williamson, which is the Supreme Court case that establishes the whole framework for thinking about vaccinations that are mandatory. And so, I think if you're in a real pandemic circumstance and a lot of people are dying, I wouldn't be surprised if they did mandate testing. 
you could do that in a lot of different ways, more or less voluntary. You could say, well, you don't have to do the test, but if you don't do the test, you know, you're not allowed out of your house for a year. If you don't do the test, uh, we might shift the civil liability standards so that you're going to bear civil liability if you give anyone else this disease, such that the incentive would be that any rational person would say, I think I'd like to take that test. What comes out of Williamson is uh, government can force on you certain invasive procedures. I mean, vaccination, I don't know that they can go much further than that, actually, but there are limits. Like if you have medical conditions that might make it particularly dangerous for you to get vaccinated, or there's just zero evidence that you have a risk of exposure or giving the disease, you know, if you have some evidence that you're immune or something, uh, they can't do it. So the same thing would apply to testing. You, you might have exceptions to it based on your individual circumstances. Again, you'd, you'd be subject to due process. You, you could challenge that and say, I want some individualized determination, but um, I think they could do it. And it would be better if it was part of a campaign to test and trace and isolate people for the purpose of freeing everyone else. Yeah, if the, I, I agree with what Larry said. And the way I would think about it is, I actually think that would be far better than what they're doing now. If they said, look, um, you know, if you think of it from the standpoint of the initiation of force, individual rights, what the government is saying is there's extreme uncertainty. We don't have any idea who has this disease and therefore we can't set or understand, we, we have no discernible standards for when a person might be violating another person's rights. So this, the, I think the standard would be something like, if you're not gonna get a test, you can't travel to these kinds of areas. It would be, uh, instead of everybody, you know, being shuttered into their, into their homes or, or having a stay at home order, it would be, look, if you wanna go outside, if you wanna go to certain, get the test, assuming the test is wide, widely available, which it should be, so part of this would have to be, we're going to allow everybody to be producing these tests, but get the test and then you can essentially, you know, show that you're not a threat to somebody else. So let me draw an analogy here to, uh, let's say you have a post-hurricane situation, right? And then there's widespread looting. And I think this has actually happened in, in various uh, areas after a hurricane. And the police essentially say, look, if you're going to go into a given neighborhood, you've got to show the police that you live in this neighborhood. So if you, if you can't show a license or some evidence that you actually live in the neighborhood, then you can't go into the neighborhood. That's, a, that's typically, you obviously are not going to have those kinds of restrictions on people's freedom of movement. But in a circumstance where there's widespread looting, there's you know, total civil unrest, and you have some way to ensure that people's rights are being protected, it can be justified as an emergency measure. And I would an analogize to that as you know, requiring people to get a test is far better than just a sweeping um, restriction on people's movement. And I think it's justifiable in a real emergency where we absolutely don't know what's going on. And you know, everybody in a circumstance like that uh, poses a threat to everybody else. I, I do think it's important to say it's an emergency because I can hear the objection saying that sounds a lot like preventive law. It sounds like now you're getting permission to move about instead of having a, a, a default, a, a presumption of being free uh, to travel. And I, I think that is right. They, the government couldn't just have a you know a pass system the way the Soviet Union to go between you know cities. You need, you need a pass. We're talking about it could be justified, and it's better than shutting everyone down in a limited, you know, time-bound emergency circumstance where there's a lot of evidence, whether it's coming from Italy or elsewhere, that, boy, if we don't do something, we might be in a real mess in two weeks. So until we can figure out what's going on, this is the system we're, we're putting in place. So we have a lot of questions. Are you guys okay to go a bit longer if we can fit a few? Sure. Okay, good. Um, so this question is from Sam on Zoom. 
you guys have both done work on economic freedom and you mentioned that they get less protection in the eyes of the the standards are lower. So can you talk a bit about uh, what's your view of anti-gouging laws or ordinances? So these come up in sort of the crisis situations where someone has electric generators and they, they sell them for five times the normal rate or now with hand sanitizer, there've been stories like that. So how do you view those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, they're totally un- unproductive, right? I mean, sometimes people are taking advantage and it looks kind of ugly because they're just sucking up all the supply in their neighborhood and then hoarding it and selling it at a much higher rate. On the other hand, even that can have some positive effects in that people treat the supplies that are available in the community more dearly if the price is suddenly spiked. So, I mean, it shouldn't be legal. Plainly, it shouldn't be legal to have anti-gouging laws. Uh, they are on the books in a lot of places. Uh, and some cities have made a big show of enforcing them in the last two weeks. Uh, there are some court decisions that say that's fine, uh, but they shouldn't be. Yeah, and I would, I mean, there are a number of different constitutional arguments one could make. I mean, contracts clause was one, although it's more or less defunct these days, so it's not a viable argument. I don't want to suggest that it is now, but it's at least a constitutional provision. But, um, you know, uh, there are various um, uh, standards that apply to restrictions on economic liberty. I think Larry mentioned earlier that uh, the, the standards are extraordinarily broad, that, that there's almost total deference to government's, government action in this context. But if you just think of it as the right to liberty and the right to, you know, um, to, to carry on uh, the actions necessary to sustain your life, which generally speaking, due process, equal protection, the privileges and immunities clause and other provisions of the Constitution protect, I think the rule ultimately should be something like a rule of rationality or a rule of reason, but a real rule of reason. In other words, I mean, price gouging laws are, are, are economically, I mean, they're just idiotic. They, 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 they uh, are extreme restrictions on people's freedom to, uh, to sell their wares and go about their, their business and live their lives. They're demonstrably, obviously stupid. Any economist who knows anything about you know uh, sound economics will tell you that and i think it would be entirely appropriate for judges to take cognizance of what's known within the field of economics and say yeah this is completely irrational and arbitrary and it's it's a violation of the right to due process etc there are are other provisions but so i've got a few questions here about how other countries are handling uh the, the coronavirus and you know let me know if this is outside of what you you've been following so there's situations in, in uh, France, uh, President Macron has talked about a state of war. We've had politicians talking about it there. And in France, apparently there, there are uh, thousands of police officers and, and military uh, personnel in the streets just to monitor if people are, are following the rules. Um, and in India, there, there are authorities beating people up apparently, this is according to the questioner, um, to enforce a lockdown. So, I mean, do you have sort of thoughts about that and and then in connection with that sort of other models that countries have tried? And I think the other models are there's parallels with uh, South Korea, which hasn't imposed this kind of lockdown. Uh, similarly, Taiwan and, and uh, I think Singapore as well. They have very different approaches, which have their own. I mean, there's also questions about that. But can you just sort of tell us what your views are on that? I mean, there are more political views than legal views, perhaps, but... You know, obviously the French and Indian perspective is the wrong one and the South Korean is a lot better. 
if, if it were a better culture, we I don't think we would need the lockdown. And I think constitutionally speaking, we probably shouldn't have the lockdown unless you have some level of uncertainty or level of evidence that there's an extreme lethality and extreme communicability for a shorter duration as is required. That's separate from what I answered before about what are the government's powers here? You know, what, what should they do is a slightly different thing. If you had a better, better culture, everyone would say, well, what we want to use the law for is to unleash the supply, allow people to adapt to this, allow people to innovate their way out of it, allow people to produce as quickly as possible. And we want to use the law to constrain the government to doing the things that is the government's job to do, which is taking care of the, the real risks. So all of this context of sort of locking down is in the is in the circumstance of we have a great deal of uncertainty. The one thing we do know is if things go the way they were going for you know the week before or two before the lockdowns, there will be overwhelming of the medical system. We don't know how long that will last and we don't know how many people are going to die. So there's a, a level of evidence there or a level of uncertainty that justified pretty extreme action, but you'd want to unwind that as quickly as possible. And I don't know how you unwind that except by uh, testing, tracing, isolating the sick people, and allowing everyone else to get back to their normal lives as quickly as possible. That should be the imperative coming out of our government. Yeah, I'll just add that one of the reasons that we should be really, really hesitant to do two things. One, analogize to war. This is not a war. It's totally different. But when you analogize to war and you start using that as, our, as, the, as the main way to frame this, uh, the next logical step is to get to martial law. I mean, and that is essentially what you know it seems to be happening. And although I haven't studied France and India or any what's happening over there, but I mean this is this is a logical pro progression. Think of this as a war. It's not a war. It's really really wrong to think about this as a war. Um, and uh, but but the other thing to think about is if we have lockdowns or shutdowns or stay-at-home orders, they have to be enforced somehow. I mean every law that you put on the books or executive order or emergency provision has got to be enforced. And that is one caution that when, when we're thinking about what types of measures to take, we need to think about, okay, if people start violating these measures or, you know, advertently or inadvertently by going hiking or something or going to the beach, you're going to need police out there enforcing these laws, which is going to lead to all kinds of tense interactions between the police and, and citizens. And it's also going to move resources away from other things. I mean, something we haven't talked about, which I don't think we're going to have time to talk about is, Think about all of the other things that the normal, you know, uh, things that government has to deal with. I mean, domestic violence, I think, has spiked and, and will probably predictably spike because people are sheltered in their homes. But there's all kinds of other consequences to this that, that we need really to think about when we impose these kinds of borders that I don't think people are thinking about. So I want to uh, turn to something uh, that has to do with so infectious diseases, but taking a step back and asking, uh, this is from a question from Zoom. So, you know, pro project forward once we're past uh, coronavirus, um, this situation, and pr presumably there'll be more viruses because this is just part of how nature happens and we can't predict. Uh, so the question is, what would you say is, is the proper way for under sort of a constitutional system to protect the country from infectious diseases? Is it like, is this partly something that you do at the border? Is there so things that government should be doing. So how would you think about this kind of issue? Because it seems like it, it, it you know, very infectious disease is a threat to other people. Um, so how, how would you go about thinking about that? I think it's appropriate, <coughs> excuse me. I think it's appropriate for government to be um, 
to have some sort of an agency or some sort of a you know branch of government or it's, it's within the executive um, and law enforcement I think and military to be thinking about infectious diseases um, both from the standpoint that of it's it's a it's a potential military threat because you can have other countries using biological weapons and the like so it, that but there's also a civilian non-military um, in this in the same way that if we take a pandemic as something that can create a uh, um, can create you know a breakdown in civil order and the types of things we've been thinking about it makes sense to have something within government that is monitoring uh, these and paying attention to them and you could have some something like the CDC and this is I think the primary purpose of the CDC is to sort of figure out and monitor these types of situations and then advise uh, executive officials or other branches of government as to what steps need to be taken or how do we define an emergency and, and I mean that that is in part a scientific question so I think that there is a proper role for government in monitoring and developing standards for this kind of thing in terms of having the productive capacity to deal with the emergency that's primarily a, a private function and what you do is you free up private industry to deal with that um, now, beyond that, I do think there is probably, yeah, I, th I think there's a proper role for something like the Defense Production Act from a national, you know, security standpoint. That is, I mean, at least I could be convinced otherwise on this, but during wartime, you know, if you're attacked, let's think after Pearl Harbor and we have no resources, we got to ramp them up quickly. You can see that there's, you know, some role for government to say, okay, we need to shift resources to be produ producing so that we can, we can meet um, the real threat by an external enemy. And, and I could see some kind of argument for a law like that if everything else breaks down. But the primary role of government should be getting out of the way and allowing people to produce so that, that private industry can deal with these kinds of things. I, I agree with that, but Elon, you know, I just want to put a word in, but the government has a role, but a lot of this is just up to people's voluntary action, right? You know, we look at and also, you don't want to be rationalistic about this. It depends on the kind of disease. What we're dealing with right now, or what we were dealing with, is a certain level of uncertainty and a crisis based on years and years and years of accumulated government regulation that produced maybe shortages in the kinds of materials we would need and lack of flexibility to people to meet the surging demand. So there's one thing that we have crisis or an emergency. It's another thing what you would do ongoing. And I, I look at every year we have a flu vaccine. And some people take it. Some people don't. And the government doesn't arrest people for not taking the flu vaccine and it doesn't uh, mandate that everyone gets the flu vaccine. I think the majority of people, I think, do take it because they find it in their interest. Part of that is the level of risk from the flu is judged to be not so dramatic that we would violate somebody's liberty right, you know, liberty interest in order to do that. If you had some disease that was highly lethal and highly communicable and walking outside basically meant that you were going to kill somebody, you know, well, yeah, you would mandate that. And I think there's a big difference there. There's a, there's a, a line you can draw. There are border cases, but the fact there are border cases doesn't mean that there are some diseases that are so lethal and so communicable that you might insist on some government restraint uh, or government control over it versus a lot of other things being just voluntary. P people would take vaccines if they thought they were at risk. And people who are at high risk should be sheltering themselves. It's not incumbent on all of us to shelter somebody to have some small percent of the population not get sick. If they're at higher risk, they should be sheltering themselves. 
Yeah, let me just echo that, that if it wasn't clear from what I said, I think government's role here is very, very small, um, but it's analogous to if you have a police force, they should be able to monitor crime. And, you know, if, we, if there are such things as pandemic emergencies, which there are, then government, I think, should be able to monitor. We should also, though, recognize something. And sorry, I shouldn't be laughing about this. It's a serious situation. But I mean, pandemics don't come along all that often. I mean, it's like now we're paying super attention to it, but it's not the normal state of life. So that the idea that government should be focusing all its resources, and there's a way in which government just careens from one thing to the other because of the way politics works. But uh, I, I mean, I, I just want to echo Larry's point that the main solution to this is private industry. And, and I mean, which, by the way, has done an unbelievable job in protecting us from disease and creating one of the best medical healthcare systems in the entire world. And certainly the free market does that. So, I mean, that's what we really should be focusing on if we want to prevent these kinds of things from happening in the future. So um, maybe two or three more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up. So one is when we were talking about doing this uh, uh, webinar today, we were, we were talking about other, how other states are handling it. So that we've got the California and New York and, and many other states are statewide lockdowns. And then other states, the governors have left it to particular counties, I think, in some cases cities. Um, do you, do you think just in terms of the, the legality and sort of the, the, the best principles to follow here, should it be more localized to, okay, we know this borough is a hotspot. Maybe that borough in particular is locked down versus the whole of New York City. I, and I don't know if that's actually accurate, but suppose that was the situation. Do you favor that in terms of just better uh, recognition for rights and freedom? I, I definitely do, um, but I mean, that what it requires is, so the, the broad principle here, the broad constitutional principle is federalism and the idea that we have, you know, um, state governments that deal with local things and then local governments all the way down to local governments and then the federal government that deals with really national issues. Um, and that, I, I, I think the, the basic goal there of, of you want um, on the ground officials dealing with on the ground kinds of problems and decentralization is much better than centralization. And generally speaking, that's a good principle of organization and it applies to government just as much as it applies to uh, any other activity. Um, but what that requires is two things. I mean, just I'll throw out quickly. One, it's coordination among all of the various levels of government, which we don't have, at least not from the federal state level. We certainly didn't have that, I think, early on. And that is a real, that, that's a real administration, Trump administration failing, although it's worth keeping in mind what government is, what, what uh, other administrations have done and can do. There's a limit to what a president can do in a, in a circumstance like this, but I think Trump has done many things, if not everything wrong. Um, and then it requires coordination. So between the federal and the state level, but also between the state government level and the local level. Um, but uh, in general, I think that's, you know, that's the best model for this, this kind of a thing. If it were a military emergency, it would be different. But for emergencies that start at the local level and move from the local to a broader level, it makes much more sense to have um, local agencies as having primary responsibility. Um, but if that, for that to work, you have to get the federal government out of the way. It can't be doing the kinds of things that it was doing in this emergency, which we've all read about from Washington, which was holding up the local officials, which by the way, in Washington, in Washington area, in the, I think it was Seattle, all of the local officials seem to have been doing all the right things. And in fact, to the extent of even ignoring 
what the FTC and the CDC were saying and saying, we're going to test anyway, uh, which I, I applaud them all for doing that. But that's a good example of why we need decentralization in government, um, just like everywhere else. There's another point, uh, Elon, there, I think, which is, you know, people always ask, what's the role of judiciary or is this unconstitutional? There's also political accountability. If you look at New York and California, they had very extreme responses, probably too extreme. They might have gotten in the way themselves in some respects and, and certainly hurting people economically. Colorado and Utah are two states that took more limited approaches, although I read today Colorado uh, maybe is going a little further with their lockdown. And that will lead to some political accountability. You know, if you have differences in the way different states are handling this, six months from now, the crisis will be over. People will assess, did our politicians put in motion the wrong kinds of things, the right kinds of things? Uh, we can act as advocates and activists to say what you should advocate for is more production, more freedom, more innovation, more flexibility, uh, less command and control style responses. And, you know, people will vote based on the persuasiveness of our activism. So on that note, one other question someone has asked, and I'll just reframe it a little. Um, do you have concerns and what would be the legality of uh, holding up the, the elections that are scheduled for November uh, and just, you know, <laughs> delaying that kind of accountability, whatever outcome it has? Uh, that sounds like a terrible idea to me. Um, this, this crisis just doesn't rise anywhere to the level and it certainly won't by November, you know, you can bet one of the major political parties would sue over that. That would be their, uh, you know, they would have standing to sue and that kind of thing. And maybe people are interested to know, I have seen lawsuits. It's not, you know, I, I said, I didn't think courts would strike down these statewide orders. There have been three lawsuits filed that I've seen uh, so far. One in uh, Pennsylvania just yesterday that challenged the fact that people can't meet in, you know, large groups, so the freedom of association sort of challenge and also seeking some kind of compensation for property rights that have been taken or the, the closures of businesses that have been involuntary. And the other two lawsuits I've seen, one was about gun rights. You know, one of the governors particularly shut down gun stores. And so there's a second amendment suit. And another one, uh, Texas, I think it's the uh, Planned Parenthood is just sued because Texas has shut down abortion clinics as non-essential services. And I think, you know, looking at those, some of these will succeed and some will fail. I mean, the abortion and the gun rights suits probably have a more likelihood of succeeding because when I was talking about that context in which the judiciary considers rights, those rights are considered more important in some sense than the property rights and economic liberties that the third suit in Pennsylvania is suing over. But we'll see fairly soon how the judges are responding to this. And depending on how those go, it will give information about where we should be attacking on a judicial level, these orders that go too broad and how we should be attacking them. So uh, we'll find out pretty soon. All right, one last question. Um, so you've mentioned the, the identify, trace, and isolate kind of model that, that I think South Korea in particular and some other countries have used very effectively, so far at least. Um, one of the things about the South Korean model that I've read is that uh, it was quite invasive in terms of people's lives. So they were tracking people's credit cards, they still do, um, using cell phone location data in real time to tell people, you know, there's a patient on your block or in, in your apartment building on level five and here's the name and address and uh, avoid that person. Or if they were in contact with someone, they would get sort of um, uh, pulled into that network of sort of tracking. Um, that sounds like 
I mean, it seems like that's a way to be very effective in isolating and tracing. And, and tra but it also, it seems like it runs afoul of what we would, if we tried that here, would seem to go against uh, the Constitution in terms of, you know, does that, is that consistent with a lawful search and seizure type rules? Some is and some isn't, right? So the Fourth Amendment was their relevant uh, part of the Constitution for this. And it says you're protected against unreasonable searches and seizures, and you have to have a warrant. There is a very relaxed standard of review in the United States for so-called administrative searches. So that's why we have to go through the TSA when we go to airports. That's why uh, local police can sometimes hold DUI checkpoints, even though they're kind of a dragnet approach. And I think you would get some kind of review like that. So the question would come, uh, you know, why are they asking to track the information? What are they using it for? For what duration? And you might get a very narrow order saying, yes, for a period of time during a pandemic crisis and during the quarantine order, you can track people's phone IP addresses to see where their movement are, but you can't do more than that. You, you can't invade it and see what their email is or who they're contacting. Uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, I think that we'd have a lot of trouble with a law like that being found constitutionally in the United States. But the point I want to make is the Fourth Amendment protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures. And again, there might be some evidence that huge lethality, you're a particular threat. We've made an individualized determination that if you move around, you're going to infect people. So we're going to get some kind of anonymized data that makes sure that we can jump on you really quickly if you go outside those borders. That might be possible. All right, well, uh, did you want to add to that, Steve? I'm just going to say I don't have much to say other than, I mean, the probable cause standard is a sensible standard precisely because it's evidence-based. Um, uh, so ultimately, what something like that would have to be based on real evidence, I think, and preferably certainly, you know, something limited to particular areas where we know the disease is, um, is you know, where the outbreaks are. But um, I, I would be floored if people wouldn't voluntarily do a lot of that kind of thing. I mean, we, we see all of the, the calls for testing. I mean, people want to be tested. It's not as though we have, and that's part of the legal analysis, I think, or at least the political analysis from the standpoint of the politicians in implementing this kind of thing. Um, it's to recognize that, look, people are trying to get tested. Everybody wants to be tested. There's nobody in the, I think there'd be very few people who say, no, 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 I'm not going to be tested. I don't want to be monitor. I don't want to provide more evidence so that the, uh, um, the various modelers and the epidemiologists can track this. Um, and that should be the first response from government, not the sort of authoritarian response. And yeah, maybe just to follow up that just very briefly, I know we're out of time, but it's, you couldn't get away with saying everybody's got to turn in their phones in this state, right? That, that obviously would be absurd. But you've gotten the test, you've been to a hospital, we know you have the disease, we know it has a one week or two week transmission time. For that period of time, we're going to track your movements and a phone is the easiest way to do that relative to the more invasive things we could do to track your movements. You know, that might be something that could meet muster under the Fourth Amendment. Well, we are over time and I appreciate you guys coming up and joining us for this webinar. Larry Salzman and Steve Simpson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Thanks. you. Well, see, maybe we can do a follow-up uh, as time goes on and we'll see new developments. Thank you all for joining us on Philosophy for Living on Earth. We hope you'll make it uh, for our next session. We're going to do more special editions uh, on issues related to the pandemic as they come up. And we hope to see you there next time. Thank you.
You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.